Welcome to the Story Talks Back. Almost everything that we remember, think about, or imagine is a story. Stories entertain us, inform us, and even define us. They have upsides, and they have downsides. This podcast explores the power of story in every aspect of our lives. I'm Dave Stanton. Thank you for joining us. Danny Shapiro is the author of Inheritance, which became an instant New York Times bestseller when it was published in January 2019. Her other books include the memoirs Hourglass, Still Writing, Devotion, and Slow Motion, as well as five novels. In February of 2019, Danny launched an original podcast, Family Secrets, which recently surpassed a remarkable 20 million downloads. Produced by iHeartMedia, the series features stories from guests who, like Danny, have uncovered life-altering secrets from their family's pasts. Danny has taught at Columbia and New York universities and has led writing workshops around the world. She's also a co-founder of the Siren Land Writers Conference in Positano, Italy. Danny lives with her family in Litchfield County, Connecticut. So, Danny, it's great to welcome you to the Story Talks Back. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. Great to be with you, Dave. And uh, so, you know, we start all our interviews by talking about stories in your past. So, you know, can you think about some of the stories or storytellers in your childhood, maybe in your family, or just stories that were in the air that you feel might have shaped you? Yeah, what a great question. Um, Two things immediately come to mind. And the first is that the um, the first 13 years of my life or so um, were spent um, in a sort of, well, no, that's not exactly right. um, my, My education, so starting in kindergarten and up through seventh grade, I went to um, a religious day school. And so the stories were the Bible. (laughs) Um, Mm. The stories were the Old Testament. Um, And um, I don't know what kind of impact, I've never never thought about whether that had any impact on me as a writer, but certainly those stories were, I mean, they were taught, they were taught as the word of God. Um, you know, I understood them later to be fables or, you know, um, sort of the, 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 the stories um, and kind of oral, oral tra- tradition and then, you know, sort of passed down through many, many centuries and generations. But that was, that was something for me. And then the other was that I had an aunt, uh, my aunt Shirley, my father's younger sister, who was and is an incredible storyteller. Um, And the stories were about my family, my ancestors, um, uh, things that her parents, my grandparents uh, did, and and even great grandparents. She's a a true poet in the way that she speaks. And and I do think that that really had an impact on me. Again, not, not sure it had an impact on me as a writer, but it had an impact on me in terms of um, uh, 
a, a sense of a kind of grounding in where I came from. Can you think of like a special story about you that maybe seems like it kind of defines you as you were in, as a child or um, how the family viewed you, how you viewed yourself? Those are such huge questions and, and deeper and richer questions uh, than they would have been five or six years ago. Right. Um, I mean, there were a lot of stories about me as a child that I was told about myself um, that in hindsight are, um, are suspect uh, in a lot of ways. And I think I even understood at the, at the time growing up that there was something about those stories that didn't quite add up or didn't, um, that, that didn't make sense. Um, right. I didn't know what that could possibly be. And I think when, when we're children and we're being told stories that don't really add up and don't really make sense, um, we don't tend to think that doesn't make sense. We tend to think what's wrong with me. So mm -hmm. that's pretty much what my um, feeling was growing up is why, why, does, why does this not all fit together in some way? Mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, and I, it's hard for me to separate out like what I remember from what I've written about. Um, but certainly there's a story that I tell in Inheritance in which um, a family is visiting my, my, my family um, on, um, on the Sabbath. And um, these, this was a couple that were older and were Holocaust survivors. And, and the, um, the lady, her name was Mrs. Kushner, um, Jared's grandmother, um, patted me on, 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 yeah, patted me on the head and, and, and said, we could have used you in the ghetto, little blondie. You could have helped get us bread from the Nazis. And I mentioned that because that's a story that never left me. It always stayed with me. Um, and I remembered it and I don't have tons of memories from my early childhood, but again, it stayed with me because it was so off. There was something about it that was so off. Um, I mean, on just the surface level, why would anyone ever say that to a child, right? Um, right. It made me feel, you know, guilty and ashamed somehow. And like, if I had been alive during the Holocaust, I could have saved people, which is a kind of a strange logic, you know, for a child to have. And I think for years, I thought that's the reason why it stayed with me. Like that's why that story stayed with me. Um, but in light of what I've discovered in recent years, um, which is that there had been this huge secret kept from me about my paternity. Um, Mrs. Kushner was really saying, you're not one of us. You don't look like one of us. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is the deeper reason why the story stayed with me. Although, of course, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean... Another story that you told was about Mark Strand at Breadloaf, which I also went to Breadloaf. And, uh, you know, I, I, he was there when I was there. And this was another person who was telling you, uh, you're different, or there's something, something that doesn't add up here. Yeah. I mean, and that, I didn't even remember that. Um, I mean, I really had completely forgotten that encounter with Mark Strand. 
because people said things like that to me all the time, every day. Um, really? And it, it was a chance encounter at AWP after my discovery about my dad and while I was writing and researching inheritance and just going through my own journey, I ran into um, a, a writer who I had been at Breadloaf with uh, and she was there, her name is um, Minette Anse. And, and Minette and I were chatting, Minette knew nothing about my life, my discovery, we hadn't seen each other in over 20 years. And out of the blue, standing there at this huge, you know, conference center, Minette said to me, you know, one of the things I re remember about you was this night at Breadloaf where Mark Strand just turned to you and said, you're not Jewish. There is no possible way that you could be Jewish. And Minette went on and she said, you know, you kept on, because I would double down when people would say that to me. I would mm -hmm. say, you know, raised kosher, went to yeshiva, you know, spoke fluent Hebrew. I mean, I really doubled down because it just bothered me so much that people would say that it confused me, didn't understand it. So I doubled down, I'm sure. I'm sure I said to Mark Strand, yep, you know, grew up with two sinks and two dishwashers and like, you know, went to synagogue every Saturday. And, he, and according to Minette, he got angrier and angrier that I was denying what to him was patently clear. And so she's telling me this story and I was gobsmacked. I mean, my jaw was hanging open and my husband was at the conference with me and he came over and he heard the tail end of the story. And he said to me, you don't remember that Mark Strand and you had this encounter? I mean, he's arguably one of the most famous poets you know, of the 20th century. It's like, yeah, no, I, I didn't because because people said it to me all the time. I mean, you had an experience that very few people have, I think, which is that, you know, in your adulthood, you know, already having had your own children, you had the stories of your own childhood and your own sort of formation just pulled out from under you, you know? Did that teach you anything about stories, about the meaning of those stories and why, why we need stories so desperately? Oh, so much. Um, <laughs> I mean, to begin with, I think I became aware pretty quickly that this was sort of this profound crisis of identity. And one of the first things that I really thought about, I mean, because it, it required me to reorder and rethink my entire history. Um, not because my father hadn't been my biological father, but because it had been kept a secret from me. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, which is a distinction I feel like I always have to make because it's not the fact of it, it it's the secret of it. And that, so one of the things that I, that I have learned about identity is that our identities are formed by the, sto by the stories that we're told from the time we're very small. Um, you know, the story of how you came to be, the story of how you were born, or if you're adopted, the story of how you came to us and, or, uh, you know, just you, you, the birth story or just all, all your, your ancestors, where you come from, your history. And those are the beginnings of the building blocks of our identity. And it doesn't matter what the stories are um, in terms of them being building blocks as long as they're true. Um, 
And if they're not, and in my case, they were not, it's like, you know, it's like my identity was being formed around something that was um, like empty in some way or um, inaccessible or just like the image that I have when I think about it is like of an empty husk, you know, like of a pod, you know, like the pod looks complete. It looks like if you, if you looked at it from a distance, it would look like a complete pod, but it's actually a husk. And, and so having to, um, and also being a storyteller, like having spent my life creating narratives and in right. part creating narratives out of that original narrative so that, you know, these stories of, um, you know, why were my parents um, so unhappy with each other? I had all sorts of narratives around that. Um, and, and they're actually traceable because they were published, right? So it's not just that I think I had narratives around them. I know I did. It's like, I wrote a story about my father um, that was a personal history piece in the New Yorker that was really my way of trying to understand his what I always felt was this sorrow that he had. And, um, and I uh, attributed it in large part to his unhappiness with my mother, um, but also to having been widowed uh, in his thirties, um, which was something that I didn't know growing up. Um, and I, when I reached the age that he had been when he was widowed, I thought, my God, that is so young to go through something like that. And and I want to know everything I can about it. And so I wrote, and he was, he was already gone. And I wrote this piece that was my attempt to try to understand my dad. And when I was done with that piece, which was a hell of a thing to write because it had to pass, pass muster with New Yorker fact checkers, but also the principles were dead. You know, so it was really, it was a piece that took me the better part of a year to research and write. And I really thought, well, now I've, now I've solved that. Now I understand the source of my father's depression, um, his addiction to painkillers, his, you know, this. And when I made this discovery, I realized that what I had, the narratives that I had fashioned, it's not that they weren't true. They just weren't the whole truth. I didn't have the whole picture. And so I had spent my life you know, writing novels that were often, um, always really revolving around a secret of some kind. Why? I mean, I could have told you, yeah, I guess that's a theme of mine, um, but I didn't know why. Um, and I wrote memoirs. I was never gonna write any memoirs. I was, I started out as a novelist. I was a fiction writer. And then I found myself being drawn to writing memoir and I think that was also a form of a kind of unconscious uh, need to excavate and, and somehow knowing that there were things that I, that I didn't know and that storytelling, I mean, I really do think that storytelling and having been able to become a writer and have spent my life doing that uh, is a, in large part what saved me, you know, and what kind of allowed me to continue to move forward and deepen, even though there was something that was really 
missing and unclear and murky. I mean, when you tell that story about Mrs. Kushner, you know, it's almost as if you're a spy in the midst of this culture, you know, because you don't fit and everybody knows it. You know it at some level, but in a way it kind of makes you an observer. It kind of sets you apart and possibly makes you an observer of what's your life, you know, and your culture. Did you, do you think that may have contributed somehow to your wanting to write? That's such a, um, that's a, that's a really powerful idea. Um, and actually puts together something that I have, um, have known about myself always, which is that I always was a, an observer, um, that there was a way in which I was a witness to my own life and to the lives of, you know, surrounding me, um, mm -hmm. that, but I, that I always in some way had my nose pressed to the glass and, mm -hmm. and felt like an outsider. Uh, again, without knowing why, without knowing why I felt like an outsider, um, but I did. And that witnessing, I mean, there's a, there's a moment very early in my first memoir, Slow Motion, where I describe myself as, I've just received a phone call that my parents have been in this terrible car accident and I can't, I can't give you the exact language, but it's, it's that I, I that part of me floats up and like watches, watches me from a corner of the ceiling um, as if this moment can be uh, played back, cut, edited later. And I also go on to write, this is something I do often. So, you know, I, I, I knew that, but I didn't know why. There was a lot of scrutiny of me Tremendous my, from my mother, tremendous, which I now have a completely different lens on. But there was also this self-scrutiny. Also, I mean, something we've already talked about a little is this theme in your book about the truth or the stories that you don't allow yourself to process or that you don't allow yourself to tell. I mean, do you think that's something that everybody has or... Do you think that only certain people are living with that? I think there's probably a sliding, you know, like a, I, I, I think we all do live with it to some degree. There are, um, I would imagine for all of us, some truths that are um, hidden from us or that we hide from ourselves. Um, and that perhaps an examined life is a life in which one continues to be willing to, um, you know, to sort of peek, you know, peek beneath and, you know, see what's there and look at what, you know, look at, look at what frightens us. But we, first we have to know that we have to know ourselves well enough to know that that's, that that's what's happening. Um, I mean, in my podcast, Family Secrets, the, the, the tagline is um, the secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others and the secrets we keep from ourselves. And I always find the secrets we keep from ourselves the most poignant and in certain ways, the most powerful. And in my case, there was a secret kept from me for sure, um, but I was also keeping a secret from myself. I mean, I, I, that was another thing I wanted to talk to you about was secrets as stories, you know, so you, you, you clearly are immersed in other people's secrets, 
you know, this has become a theme for you, as you said. Um, are secrets a special kind of story? I mean, what is it about a secret that makes it special or different? I think it's the way that, in part, the way that a secret um, enacts itself upon us. Um, so secrets don't just go away because they're kept secret. They seep, as a friend of mine puts it. Um, they leak. Um, they create energy in the air around them that's like noxious fumes that we can't see but we can feel and I think causes us to act or react in ways that are a result of um, like the image that I have is of you know the way that um, you know vines or trees might uh, you know sort of grow around each other I think we form ourselves around a secret um, very often without, without knowing it, or we're being formed by a secret because the people around us are cognizant of something that we aren't. So I think from, from a dramatic perspective, um, like in, 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 in screenwriting, there's this um, bit of wisdom that was told to me recently, which is um, uh, the lies are in the dialogue, the truth is in the action. Um, you know, and I, I think when it comes to secrets that there's a lot of lies in the dialogue um, and, and there's action that the person who's, who the secret's being kept from can intuit and can feel, but doesn't know why, why it seems that way. So to me, that's endlessly interesting. Um, and also the way that being a secret keeper can, um, you know, alter the course of an entire life um, you know, the, the shame that is so often beneath what is secret is a tremendous driver in all sorts of ways that, um, I mean, as a, as a, as a writer, what I'm, in, I'm interested in, I'm interested in character. I'm interested in internal life. It's the most, the deepest, most pleasurable part of of writing fiction for me has always been accessing the inner life of another, you know, like invent, inventing characters and, and feeling that I have total access to them, to inner lives other than my own in some way. Um, and I think a secret adds this layer of um, complexity to, I mean, all of our inner lives are complex, but when but when we're either keeping a secret or a secret's being kept from us, it's, it's, it's working on our inner lives in some way that I find really interesting. But you raise a point, which is that a secret is a story that's out of your control. You know, it's other people are controlling this story about you or about whatever happened. So do you feel like by becoming a writer or even by doing this podcast, you know, you're trying to take control and help other people take control of, of these stories, which have such impact, but that are hidden? Mm. I do think that becoming a writer and 
part of why becoming a writer, as I said, I feel saved me in many ways is because, um, I mean, look, I, I, I teach a course, the title of which is um, uh, turning, turning chaos into art, you know, or like the, the whole idea of like making order out of chaos is so deeply satisfying. And, um, you know, many times people have asked me since Inheritance came out, well, you know, do you always know that you were going to write this story? Almost with, when it's asked, it's with a whiff of, you know, well, you, you know, you really are in some way um, uh, exposing, you know, your parents' secrets uh, or, you know, well, I mean, I changed my biological father's name and identifying details in the book, so I'm not exposing his secrets, but they asked me whether I considered his uh, privacy before I reached out to him, right? And I'm like, no, I did not. I was, it, the feeling both in, in terms of my parents, I mean, I've, I'm always very concerned about writing about other people and the responsibility of writing about other people. But in this case, I had absolutely no misgivings because it was the story literally of my life. It was, you know, I, writing it, harnessing it, which is more like what it felt like to write that book. I felt like I was harnessing this gigantic, you know, story that spanned um, my whole life, but also life before me, my parents' lives, the decisions that they made, the cultural and societal implications of the ways that um, doctors and, and reproductive medicine dealt with um, infertility uh, at that time. Um, and, and still to some degree where the, where the child is simply not considered, not considered. Mm. I mean, very brief digression, but um, it came to my attention recently that um, some of these, like, like, like one of the largest sperm banks uh, in the country um, advertised a giveaway that was um, the prize of which was a vial of donor sperm. And somebody that I follow on social media posted it and wrote, what are you gonna tell your children about their conception story? I won you in a raffle? You know, I mean, it's so, it's, it, it lacks understanding on such a profound level about the lives that are being created because all that's really happening is everybody has desire. The parents have desire, the donors have desire, the clinics that are making money have des desire, but nobody's thinking about the end result as a human being or often many human beings. So the feeling that I had of wanting to harness or control this narrative was, I mean, I was like one step ahead of it. And that, that's the way that I was able to actually write that book. I wasn't in it but I wasn't far away from it. I was like one step ahead of it. And the part of writing that book that was most, um, nothing about it was pleasurable, but the part that was like most meaningful to me was when I got to the part where all that research I did caught up with the part of the story that I was writing so that I could really explore the ethical, the philosophical, um, the, um, you know, the social, the psychological, the spiritual implications of, 
of such a discovery. So yeah, I think more, more with inheritance than with any other book, but really it's kind of what I, it's kind of the, the work of my life um, to, um, it's, it's to, to inquire, to explore. Um, I mean, the inquiry ends up sometimes using my own life as you know, a way in and sometimes not, but it's always, um, somebody recently described me in a review as um, a public contemplative. And I thought, I love that. Like that actually feels both dignified and true. Um, I had been describing myself a little bit pejoratively as a serial memoirist, but it's in fact, I mean, why was I a serial memoirist? I, I was digging. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's funny that that story you told reminds me of your mother saying that she won the lottery. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, like well, there's a sentence right there that meant one thing to me um, for most of my life and then meant, meant something vastly different um, with a fuller, you know, having a fuller picture. Right. But I mean, the fact that you are a memoirist or that, that that has been a big portion of your writing, you know, it did set you up for a very strange situation with doing this story. I mean, your story also happens to be your career at the moment and has been for several, quite a while. Um, I mean, how has that, you sort of touched on it before, but how has that um, created problems or um, or opportunities for you as a storyteller to to be writing yourself. <laughs> no, I feel like I I am always conscious of finding the the line or the boundary or um, the place where my life is just my life, and um, you know, like a line I won't cross. Um, and, you know, I think people don't realize that because I've written so much that's personal, but, um, for example, when my son was born, I remember looking at him like newborn in the hospital and thinking, you did not ask to be born to a mother who's a writer. What are we going to do about that? You and me, what are we going to do? Because my you know, inner world has just been completely transformed by your birth. I'm like no longer the same person and I'm gonna to wanna to write about that, but how can I do that and protect you? And, and so like my dance with my son all through his life and he's 22 years old now um, has been that I have always asked myself the question, can I envision a future in which he's 30? That was always the number in my head when he's 30 and he turns to me and says, I wish you hadn't written that. And if the answer, could possibly be yes, it's not someplace that I went. And yeah, you know, I even check with him if I'm posting a picture I just took of him on Instagram. I'm like, is this okay? I'm, I'm, I'm very, because I'm aware that he has grown up with um, kind of with a version of himself being public where people would like come up to him at readings of mine and say, oh, you've gotten so big, you know, as if they mm -hmm. knew him or, um, just kind of confusing him in a certain way with the character him on the page. And there is a difference. Or another example of that is 
my my biological father, you know, who I write about in Inheritance, I wanted to be able to have a relationship with him ongoing, uh, if if he wanted one as well, that would be private. And so when people ask me, what's your relationship with him now like, or do you see him, or does any have you met this person or that person, or has he, I, I said, that's, that's my answer. My answer is, I don't talk about that. I'll talk about anything up through the, what I wrote about in Inheritance. And I'll talk about, you know, what's in the book in that way, but not, you know, like my life is not a sequel to Inheritance. So <laughs> there really is a, uh, you know, sometimes I'll be at a dinner party or something and somebody will be telling a story and then suddenly they'll realize I'm sitting there and they'll look at me and say, you can't write about that. And meanwhile, it's, it's such a misunderstanding of what I'm like, I'm not, I am not there taking mental notes. I never, t I don't take mental notes. I, things pierce me. Um, Joan Didion has this great um, analogy about knowing that she wants to write about something because it has a shimmer around the edges of it. Things mm -hmm. shimmer for me, but I don't, I'm not there kind of, you know, like secretly, you know, taking notes. Um, so, so there's like, there's the storytelling and, and there's, there's the living and they're not completely separate because the shimmer happens, but they're not the same. But in a way, everybody's a memoirist now because we have social media and we have reality TV and everybody is telling selective versions of their own story and, and uh, having a lot of different motives. Um, but I think yeah. people people kind of assume assume that you're that everyone's about some kind of self promotion or yeah I mean that's that just kind of goes with the territory um, it's a part of it that I find pretty unpleasant um, because this has never been about like, I think that I'm so interesting or my life is so interesting. Although the last few years have been pretty interesting. It's, it's always been, I'm really interested in like, for example, my, my, my memoir, Hourglass, uh, in which I write about my marriage. Um, that began because I really found myself just obsessed with the question of time and you know what happens to us over time and if we're with a partner over a long period of time how do we grow alongside of each other or you know what happens if we don't what happens if we grow in different ways i was interested in the inquiry or what wendell berry calls it was a phrase from a, an essay of wendell berry's uh essays called on poetry and marriage and the phrase was the problems of duration and i thought i want to write about the problems of duration and the beauty of duration and the complexity of duration. Now, the only duration that I'm an expert on is my own marriage's duration. So that came along with this feeling of like, oh no. And it terrified me, which is always a good sign. And then I asked my husband if it was okay and I got his blessing. Um, otherwise I wouldn't have written it. So, but, it, but it, none of this is a kind of, um, about the the putting myself forward in a way. Like I like to be alone. I, you're the first person I've spoken to all day and we're talking to each other in the late afternoon. That's not true. I've talked to my dog. 
You know, like I, I, I'm not, you're the first person I've seen, actually I've talked to a couple of people, but I like, you're the first face. And like, it's, that's how I like it. I, I like being alone in a room, uh, crafting something that I then send out into the world. And if I could send it out into the world and have all these readers without doing any promotion, I would. But it doesn't work that way. And I mean, it really does not work that way in our time. Right. So I do what I need to do, but it's entirely in the service of getting my work into the hands of readers. It's funny, your, your story reminded me, I, I don't know where I saw, I, I saw John Fowles do a lecture once and he was talking about how he started out as a journalist, but he didn't want to hurt real people. Mm. So he became a fiction writer and then he became more ruthless about everything. He had yeah. to be the truth and he was using real people as his subjects, you know. Yeah. Not directly, yeah. but. Uh, well, this is why I, I will often say I, I have students come to me sometimes who want to write memoir, but they're too afraid. So they say that they will write it as fiction or that they will fictionalize it. And um, the thing that that I always respond with is that fictionalizing something um, does not make for good literature. Um, if something mm. needs to be a memoir, then it needs to be a memoir. And if you're fictionalizing it to protect yourself, you're writing something that's like a, a tepid shadow of what it could have been. But if you're writing fiction, which involves invention, and yes, I mean, sure, maybe it begins with some glimmer of a, of a real person, but it takes off from there and goes somewhere else. And as someone who has done both, I know the freedom of, you know, those little words, a novel on the dust jacket um, in terms of, you know, not really, I, I actually think that reading a writer's body of work when it's fiction tells us more about the psyche of that, of that writer than, um, than an armload of memoirs but it still is also its own form of protection because it's, it's a novel. Hmm. I wonder, do you think that, you know, the stories that are told about us or the stories that, um, you know, we keep in our minds are less flexible than we ourselves actually are, that the stories are sort of etched in stone and it may even be the way we define ourselves. And yet at the same time, we're transforming and other people are transforming in ways that are much more subtle. It's an interesting question. I mean, my, my, my first response is that I think our stories change as we change. Um, you know, I think it would be a really interesting exercise for someone to spend their, their life's work writing the same memoir once a decade. Um, <laughs> right. Because it would be a different book. Uh -huh. um, I mean, as we evolve, our points of view evolve, our memories evolve. Also, I mean, neurobiologically speaking, our memories change each time we remember something, um, which is why, I mean, this is a story that in my work that really illustrates this is I was writing my memoir devotion sitting right here where I'm talking to you. Um, nothing's changed 
uh, this is like more than 10 years ago. And I got to a part in that book where I realized I was writing one scene that I had written about before in my memoir, Slow Motion, a decade earlier. <laughs> and I could have like, Slow Motion's in that bookcase right there. I could have turned around and grabbed it and like looked and seen what I had written 10 years earlier. And I didn't. Um, and it was, and I didn't on purpose. I wanted to write the scene. Um, and it was the moment um, that I found out that my father had died. And I was 23 years old and it was February 23rd, 1986. And it was a freezing cold day, very, very clear blue sky. I was wearing a black skirt and a gold silk blouse because it was the eighties and high heeled boots as one did. And, um, and as I wrote the scene, my uncle, my father's younger brother came into the hospital. My father had been in a car crash. And he, he said, where, and he knew, he knew my father had died. And he said, where's your father? And I said, he's, he's still up in, his body is still in his hospital room. And my uncle said some version of, how could you have allowed his body to be left unattended? Because in Orthodox Judaism, my father's family were Orthodox Jews. It is, it is, it is completely not okay to leave a body unattended from the moment of death until the moment of burial. And the feeling that I had was I had failed my father. And I like my lack of knowledge of the Jewish law, you know, that I was once again an outsider in my family. And I, I, so after I finished the scene, I went back and I got slow motion and I found the scene in slow motion and I reread it. Same date, same outfit, same weather, same spot I was standing in the hallway. My half sister walks into the hospital and says, where's dad's body? Pretty much the same conversation and the same um, after effect of the conversation, which is that I felt that I had failed my father, that I had not known that I was an outsider, that I had screwed up, that I, I, I couldn't fix it. So here was this fascinating situation um, because never for a second did I think I should align these two scenes now. Was it my uncle? Was it my sister? Well, my uncle was dead. I couldn't ask him. My half sister, I suppose I could have asked, but would her memory have been more true than mine? Would my memory have been truer 10 years earlier or 10 years later? Um, so in my memory, the one detail was who said, either one of them could have said it. It was in character, completely plausible for either one of them to say it. The most important thing was my emotional response was still the same. You know, like what, what happened and what my response was, was still the same. Right. So I, I, I let it stand because I thought it would make a really interesting teaching point and because it was true to memory, which is what memoir is. It's not true to, you know, the facts. We don't have the facts. I mean, I am, I am, you know, like an object lesson in how we don't have the facts. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, but, but even with less dramatic stories than mine, we just don't. What we have is our perception. Right, right. Uh, just one, one more thing I want to talk to you about was spiritual stories. So, you know, when we think about religion and, and 
our all, all of our individual pursuits of some sort of understanding of spirit, it seems like they really evolve, revolve around stories, you know, that we're looking for a kind of a spiritual story that fits us, whether it's a story of Jesus or the Buddha, and somehow um, it needs to ring true, you know, or true for us. I mean, is that your perception of what the spiritual journey is like? Have you felt that in your own life? terms of looking for stories and, and understanding it in terms of stories? Yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, when I wrote my memoir, Devotion, which was very much about a spiritual inquiry, quest, um, spiritual slash existential, um, I remember when I finished a draft, I um, gave it to a friend of mine to read. It was actually um, the writer, Jennifer Egan. And Jenny read it and she said, you know, it's so interesting. I was reading this book and I, I am, I'm an atheist. And, and I'm, as I was reading it and reading about your childhood and reading about your search, I was thinking, what is that for me? Like, what, what is that? Like, what does that for me? And, and she said, and I thought, it's writing that does that for me. And I thought, well, it's writing that does that for me too. I mean, I, I have a meditation practice. Um, I have a connection to my history um, having been raised with, you know, I mean, in moments of severe crisis or trauma in my life, he, my mind is flooded with Hebrew, you know, just because that's, that's, that's what I got. Um, that was the foundation. That was the, that foundational piece of identity to go back to identity. But I think for me, that's also always evolving. Um, a rabbi recently described my dad to me as your spiritual father. Um, you know, not all these terms we have, your biological, your non-biological father, your social father, which I hate, your adoptive father, none of it felt accurate to me. And finally, what felt accurate was your spiritual father, like the, the idea that there is this connection um, that transcends blood and that transcends time and that transcends death. And um, like that for me is um, the story that I'm telling myself, right? That's the one that the one that hooks hooks me, um, and that feels true to my internal world. Um, so, you know, I have never really found that sense of connection in in anything that looks like organized religion. Um, I think in large part because I was raised with this all or nothing um, way of being at the same time as I, as I was being told, you're not one of us in some way or another every day of my life. And mm -hmm. so, so I'm, I'm never going to have an uncomplicated relationship with the tradition that I come from um, or, or any other tradition because I'm so steeped in that one. Um, so it's really in a way about creating it um, which brings us all the way back to storytelling. Well, it's been great talking to you, Danny. I really appreciate your time. You know, you're being so thoughtful. You too, Dave. I've actually really loved this conversation. You've asked me questions I have not been asked before. So thank you. The Story Talks Back is produced and hosted by Dave Stanton. 
The music you're hearing now was written and performed by Christopher Daydream. The theme music at the beginning of our show is an excerpt from Play by Merlin Twelfthoven, performed by Carlos Quartet as part of their 50 for the Future series. Please subscribe to the Story Talks Back on Podbean and check us out on Instagram. See you next time.